on Dig Me Out, Tim and Jay review Still Feel Gone by Uncle Tupelo. So it's safe to say that this is the Beatles of the 90s. <laughs> what? No, it is not safe to say that. It's so unsafe to say that. I'm going to punch you next time I see you. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I am your host, Tim Minichi, and my co-host, once again, Jason Ziak. Jay. Yeah. I'm really ramping it up this week. <laughs> Bring it God, in. You're better, so. up, you're better up ignoring that. <laughs> uh, we have a, uh, a guest with us on this episode. You might know him from such other episodes as <laughs> previous episode, uh, Swerve Driver, and the what will actually be the next episode, Bark Market, because this one comes out. Even though we just recorded Bark Market, it actually comes out after this episode. Whoa, I'm confused. I know. It, don't worry about it. EMI. You don't have to. Uh, you don't have to think about it. Uh, Neil Schmidt is back with us. Uh, return engagement. He was uh, a big hit on the Swerve Driver podcast, so we said we've got to have him back, and uh, he's back with us. Welcome. To the hey, show, the Neil. fans get what fans want. That's what I'm about. They do, do this. <laughs> exactly. And he is back for what might be. Um, the most important episode we ever do. It's not even right that we're reviewing this album. It is. It, well, it is and it isn't. Um, no. Okay. Why do you say that, Jay? Because Tim didn't have to dig very far to, to dig this out. Well, it's not- <laughs> he's like the. Uh, I think he's the president of the Uncle Tupelo uh, fan club of North America. I, I will admit, when I was in college. I was given the nick- the nickname Uncle Tim Kovalt because I was such uh, a big fan it, of Sunvolt, Wilco, and Uncle. Uh, your Spotify playlist to me. Well, right, all right. That's so. Yeah, it isn't even called "Dust Me Off." This is this is right. Press play. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> no, I know. Uh, actually, well, a typical a typical weekday morning for Tim. No, that's not true. I haven't picked this <laughs> record up in quite a long time um you know I, i've been progressing it with jay jay farrar and jeff tweedy as they've been putting stuff out and i haven't really gone back and listened to the uncle tupelo stuff in a number of years so it was actually kind of a you know not a revelation but that i am pretty familiar and we'll get into that later but um you know there were some things that i picked up on that i maybe didn't pick up on five years ago or ten years ago um so we're, we didn't really talk about it. We're doing Uncle Tupelo's uh, album, Still Feel Gone, which came out in... Here did it come out. Let me check my notes here. came out in 1991 and then was reissued in 2003. However, before we get into the actual album, we need to do the history of the band. History of the band. Uncle Tupelo formed in Belleville, Illinois in 1987. Uh, there's a lot of history to this band. I'm just going to try to skim it so we don't spend three hours yeah. through the band. Originally, they were called the Plebes. Oh, God. It was Jay Farrar. <laughs> Terrible. It was Jay Farrar <laughs> with his brothers Wade and Dale. Uh, 
they were a basically a local cover and somewhat original band playing in their hometown. They entered a battle of the bands, and they had been playing songs, but they didn't have enough people to actually play all the parts. So Jay Farrar, who was in high school at this time, asked his friend Jeff Tweedy, uh, would you come and play some you know, bass or guitar? I don't even know what he's playing at this point. Uh, and he said, okay, I really don't know how to play, but I'll, I'll help out. So he jumps on, and they play their sort of punkish rockabilly songs. Um, in 84, Dade, uh, yeah, Dade Farrar uh, introduces the band members to Mike Heidorn, and he joins the group as a drummer, replacing Dade. They change their name, thank God, to The Primitives, and uh, Wade Farrar, who is the lead singer, uh, quits because he had enlisted in the army, um, moving Jay and Jeff to actually do some songwriting. Uh, so the, the lineup at this point is sort of the seminal lineup of the band. It's Jay, Jeff, and Mike Heidorn. Um, at this, in 86, Mike Heidorn breaks his collarbone during a concert, and they go on hiatus for a year. Um, they change their name from the primitive drummer broke his collarbone yeah during a show I, he must have been you know smashing his instruments or something ridiculous like that i don't i don't think Did it was for our punch him <laughs> no but we'll get to that <laughs> later uh they decided to change their name because the primitives were already a band uh from britain and they changed it to uncle tupelo which was a character drawn by a friend of theirs in a cartoon um, and they use the name for the name of their first four-song demo tape, which actually won them the right, or not the right, but the, it won them a chance to play for some local uh, concerts, opening for Johnny Thunders at one concert and Warren Zevon at another concert. They met uh, Tony Margarita, or Mar Margarita, I guess is how you pronounce it. Um, Love you struggling not? with names. I, I just, it's, it's <laughs> every episode. Bane of my existence. It's, it's, it's my favorite names. part of the show. <laughs> anyway, Tony would end up being the longtime manager of Wilco. But it, he meets uh, Jeff and uh, or Jeff Tweedy at a record store in St. Louis, and they become friends, and he starts managing the band. Um, for a short period of time, they became a four-piece with a second guitar player, but then quickly moved back to a three-piece. They record a second demo called Not Forever, Just For Now, which included songs like I Got Drunk and Screen Door, and a few other songs would appear on their first album. CMJ got a hold of the tape and gave it rave reviews and called Uncle Tupelo the best unsigned band of the year. Which I'm guessing this is probably 1988 or 89. Um, two independent labels in New York bought over signing Uncle Tupelo and Giant Records, which changed its name to Rockville Records, ended up signing the band. Their first album for Rockville was recorded in 10 days in January of 1999, or 1990, uh, at Fort Apache South Recording Studio in Boston, Massachusetts. It was recorded with Sean Slade and Paul Coldery, who had Coldery. Two of they my had recorded um, some Dinosaur Jr. And that was what led Farrar to um, pick them to record. He actually used a 1961 Gibson Les Paul 
SG Junior that Jay Massis used on Bug to record their first album, No Depression. Uh, in between tours, Farrar, Tweedy, and Hydorn formed a cover band called Coffee Creek, along with Brian Henneman, who was later a member of the Bottle Rockets. Henneman then became a guitar technician for a band and a multi-instrumentalist for The Road. In 91, No Depression sold an estimated 15,000 copies and was featured in Rolling Stone about rising music stars. Also in 91, the band retreated to Longview Farm in North Brookfield, Massachusetts for 17 days to record Still Feel Gone, also with the same uh, producers. Uh, this time, instead of the band by themselves, they added uh, Henneman, Rich Gilbert, Chris Bess of Enormous Richard, and Gary Loris of the Jayhawks on various songs playing various instruments, such as pedal steel, slide guitar, violin, and some songs, uh, keyboards. The band toured in 92, and Peter Buck of R.A.M. saw the band playing at the 40 Watt Club in Athens, sought them out after the show, and asked to produce their next record. Over the span of five days, Buck produced March 16th through the 20th, 1992, literally the name of the date of the recording, um, at his house, uh, which he charged no money for the recording. Henneman was brought on almost for the entire album. He played mandolin, and I'm going to screw up the name of this instrument, Ozuki? I don't know what that instrument is, but that's what he's credited as playing. The long mandolin. The album, even though it was a primarily acoustic record, the album sold, sold more than the previous two albums combined, and that caught the ear of Sire Records, employee Joe McEwen, who had brought Dinosaur Jr. and Sean Colvin to Sire. And at the urging of Gary Loris of the Jayhawks, McEwen offered Uncle Tupelo a contract. Uh, their manager invoked a $50,000 escape clause that was in the Rockville recording contract, freeing the band to sign a seven-year deal with Sire. The deal required two albums and specified a budget of $150,000 for the first. Um, at this point, Mike Hydorn left the band. He had um, gotten a job at a newspaper company and uh, did not want to tour anymore. So they rec uh, recruited first drummer Bill Belzer, and then he was replaced shortly after by Ken Coomer, who would join Tweedy and Wilco for the first two albums. Uh, three albums, actually. The band also added John Stewart on bass. Uh, Brian Henneman left at that point to play in the Bottle Rockets. Um, Max Johnston, who was the brother of Michelle Schacht, joined as li on uh, live mandolin and violin. And this moved Tweedy from bass to guitar on most songs. So as a five-piece, they recorded at Cedar Creek Studio in Austin, Texas in early 1993. The album Anodyne um, sold 150,000 copies was the only entry for the band on the Billboard Heat Seeker chart. They contributed in 1993 the cover of a song of the uh, Creed and Water revival song Effigy to the No Alternative compilation. In 94, uh, Jay Farrar called manager Tony Margarita to inform him of his decision to leave the band. 
who said he was no longer having fun and did not want to work with Jeff Tweedy anymore. They, they had not had any sort of a real relationship since the end of the first record. Tweedy, Jeff Tweedy was pissed off about this because he was never told directly by Jay Farrar and during their, they agreed to do a final tour because of their debt owed to the record label um, and Jeff Tweedy and uh, Jay Farrar got into shouting matches, a shouting match two weeks into the tour because Jay Farrar refused to sing harmony on any of Jeff Tweedy's songs. <laughs> uh, they band made an appearance on Late Night with Conan O'Brien and again Jay Farrar got mad because the record label wanted them to play the long cut which was a Jeff Tweedy song their last concert was at on May 1st 1994 at Mississippi Nights in St. Louis Missouri Jay Farrar and Jeff Tweedy each performed nine separate songs and Mike Hydorn, the original drummer came out and played uh, a couple songs during the encore uh, in I'm not going to get into the histories of Wilco and Sunvolt that's a whole separate show but in 2000 Jay Farrar and Jeff Tweedy independently both sued Rockville Records and the Dutch East India Trading Company uh, CEO Barry Tenenbaum because royalties had never been played, paid for any of the Rockville record releases and they sued to get the rights back for the first three albums which they did and they released uh, 89 to 93 an anthology of uncle tupelo and that alone along with the reissues of their first three albums sold 200,000 copies so that is sort of a truncated we're suing to get your rights yeah Make sure no you kidding. have the right that to is a music. truncated uh there's some more stuff I don't know how truncated that was. There's, that was there's a lot more. Story, this is a pretty detailed band based on, you know. So you have, so you have, you know, Jay Farrar going off to do his right. uh, Sunvolt records. You know, then later on, Jay Farrar fires the entire Sunvolt band, hires a new band, calls them Sunvolt, releases several more Sunvolt records. In the meantime, also releases right. Jay Farrar solo records. And Jeff Fried, of course, goes on to Wilco and okay. plays. And turns into and, the Grateful uh, also... Dead. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's awesome. Uh, I was going to mention that they also recorded. But did he fire his whole band too? Well, no, not the whole band. They, it's sort of, it's it's not, it, oh. you know, uh, in watching that sort um, of, yeah. the Foo Fighters documentary, it was not unlike what went on with that, where they sort of like lost members here and there along the way. No, <laughs> what do you mean? Dave Grohl went in the studio without Will Goldsmith. And then Nate Mendel said, hey, we went in the studio and he re-recorded all your drum parts. <laughs> well, well in terms of like, when, uh, and I don't want to get too deep anymore. into the Wilco stuff, but in terms of, you know, the first Wilco record is basically all the guys from Uncle Tupelo that Jake Farrar left. And then on the second Wilco album, they sort of switched the multi-instrumentalist guy. Yeah, but Ken Coomer kind of makes some waves and asks for, you know, he gets fired because he asked for an audit of the band and his side of the story was, you know, Wilco makes him over a million dollars a year and I can't pay my rent. What's going on? I just wanted to find out where the money was going. Well, one of the, fired again, I don't want to get too deep into this, but when they released Being There, they had recorded a double album and it's a really good record, good except record. in order to release it as a, the cost of a single album, the record label said, okay, we can put it out as at the cost of a, a single CD but you're going to eat $400,000 of 
basically every all the royal all the rights to this record are ours. So they don't make any money off that record. Off being there? That's but he wanted to record. do a double record, and that's what it cost because he didn't want to, he didn't want people to have to pay for two records. So this is uh this is the naive Jay Farrar and Jeff Tweedy. This is the teenager to uh you know early twenties Jay Farrar and Jeff Tweedy on on Still Feel Gone. And I I, I picked free, this one for ego. Yeah, I picked this one for a specific reason. The first record, No Depression, is iconic. There are there's a magazine named No Depression because of that record. That has the covers of of the Carter family, and it's really the the benchmark for whatever you want to call alternative country. It's that record. This record, however, is really the band moving into different territory, moving away from just half punk rock songs and half acoustic country songs, and sort of finding a different way to play with that. There definitely is a war going on. Yeah, and I think that that's what makes it really interesting. It's my favorite Uncle Tupelo record, and I'll, I'll, you know, we'll get into this a little bit, but. This was the record I learned to play guitar to. When this, when I first discovered Wilco and Sunvolt, it was in, uh, it would have been, I guess, 94, 95. Uh, yeah, so January 94, they broke up, and then in 95, May 94 was their last gig. Yeah, 94, 95, 96. That's when I first start, I guess, 94, 95. Uh, that's when I first just pick up a guitar. Haven't even, you know, I've never played guitar in my life. I'm in college at this point. And I hear Wilco, and I'm like, this is kind of interesting. And I hear Sunvolt, and this is interesting. We're, we're, I, I keep reading about this Uncle Tupelo that they were in. And I, this was the first record of theirs that I picked up. I didn't get the last record of the first record. I got this record. The last record, Anodyne, is considered sort of like the benchmark for, um, you know, their, their popularity in terms of they actually made the charts and stuff like that. So it's the one that's a little more familiar for people. Um, mm. But this was the one that happened to be at the record store. They didn't have the other record. So I got this one. And I sat. <laughs> oh, back in the days before the internet. Yeah. So I sat. You basically took whatever the record store had. Yeah. And listened to this record and was just mesmerized. And I, and I went onto the internet and I found guitar tab sites. And that existed back then. And I started figuring out how to play these songs with reading the guitar tab because I couldn't read music and my ear wasn't good enough to pick a lot of it out. So I really, I, I don't want to say I owe a lot to this record, but um, it definitely influenced what I like in terms of guitar playing. Um, there's a lot of Neil Young in the, in the guitar soloing that Jay Farrar does. And I, you know, the next thing I was listening to was 1970s Neil Young after this. You know, Tonight's the Night and those records and Zuma and stuff like that. So that's my sort of relationship with this record. But I want to hear what you guys... <laughs> I want to hear what you guys... Because I don't think you guys are a particular fan of this genre. Um, I, did not, I did not learn how to play guitar to this record. Right. I do not know how to play this entire record on guitar. I, I'll sit down so. and I will give you a concert next time you're over. <laughs> oh, God, I can't wait. <laughs> I might have even played him at an open mic night. I'm not. I'm not saying I did, but I'm pretty. I'm I bet you did. I might have. <laughs> uh, but I want to hear what you guys have to say because there's a lot of different influences going into this band. With, like I mentioned, Neil Young, Dinosaur Jr., Minutemen. Obviously, there's you know, guys like Hank Williams Jr. There's the Carter family that they reference on the first record. Um, 
lots of traditional country, I guess you would say. Um, I, I want to hear if, if you guys are hearing that, all those things that I mentioned, where where this sort of fits in, because this is this comes out in '91. This is the same year as Nevermind. <laughs> Just to give you a yeah, it, it doesn't fit anything else that was going that I was aware of at the time. I'll say that, and um, I think in terms of the influences, I, I think what's more more interesting to me is that you know it's hard, it's impossible for me to listen to this and not compare it to Wilco and Sunvolt. Um, I'm more familiar with those bands, as most people are, so it's impossible to listen to this and not think about that. Um, so what's more interesting to me than the influences is the personalities and the, uh, I think Neil mentioned it, the battle that's going on in this record that that you just don't hear bands, you know, you don't hear that put to, I guess you don't hear that very often anymore. There's not a lot of bands that have two guys that are this talented with this big egos putting an album together of what there's like 12 13 tracks on this 13 yeah um, they're both sort of i guess in the same ballpark or what they're trying to do but they each have their own way about doing it so it's kind of it's pretty fun to listen to as it kind of goes back and forth it's like jeff tweedy gets a song then jeff Farrar gets two slow songs then jeff tweedy gets another song and another slow song it's like this back and forth and then i'm listening to it like trying to hear like when do they sing backups for each other and when can you pick that up and when are they sort of just doing their own thing and the other guy's not playing on it at all um so i was i was intrigued and sort of having fun just listening to that whole dynamic and imagining how all that came to be um how that album was created how the songs were created with with two guys that obviously have pretty big egos probably button heads all the time about you know whose songs go on here and who plays what part and and all that stuff um the influences are they're interesting i mean to me i'm always more intrigued when they sort of combine themselves into into singular songs so like track one um i sort of get a replacements vibe but it's also got a neil young thing going on which is cool um it sort of has a feel of some of the what wilco went on to, to be songs like that to me really are the most interesting um then there's moments where it gets real singular you know there's some songs in here that are kind of like just like folk songs that jay farrar does they're still pretty good but you know they're not as multi-dimensional as others um so that, that's kind of what I, I just love the personalities i just love listening to how, <laughs> and imagining how they put this record together what were your thoughts um mr schmidt <laughs> um, well, 
and I, I agree that it's it's so hard. You there's no I you have to listen with the preconceived notions that I have coming into the record. So um, I like Jay Farrar as a songwriter. I like him a lot, and I don't think he has really flushed it out. Um, here's Tear Stained Eye is a favorite uh, in this house. So <clears throat> as an artist, he's he's done a lot of good. Um, with that said, you know, I don't think he's sometimes the easiest person to get along with. And he couldn't um, try any less to be a performer on stage. No. <laughs> um, he is, 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 is more like a rock. It's like a, he somehow has managed to turn a rock into playing guitar. So <clears throat> he's, he definitely has faults. But I love, but, and his delivery is really consistent. And it's sort of interesting to sort of listen to this record and, and see how he's kind of working it out a little bit. And he's trying some different things. Um, so he's sort of coming at the music from the from the mellower side, and I think he was um, uh, probably more into the catalog of some of the artists that Tim you mentioned, um, and then probably delivering those to Jeff Tweedy and sort of introducing him. and And Jeff is definitely coming at it for sort of um, again another man you mentioned the replacements, coming at more from that angle, which is sort of the more the the naive and the, the energetic and I just want to rock, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, you know, um, let's like, okay, there's this cool part, ding, 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 and then we'll get to the, <laughs> you know, bring on the rock. And, and that's that battle going on. So, you know, eventually, you know, Jay Farrar sort of finds some of that, but a lot of his, um, he finds this sort of middle ground and never can turn up um the, the energy level in his delivery the, around him the music can get really sort of bigger but his voice will never reach like uh, um, the raggedness that uh, raggedness that uh, Jeff Tweedy's has where he's just like shredding his voice and and you know that's um, definitely a Paul Westerberg trait that I like a lot um and then, you know, as time has gone on, Jeff Booty has lost all of that and lost any sort of edge. Um, but being sad and having a parent and getting old will do that to you. Are you saying so, you've lost your edge, um, And then you turn. Uh, I have totally lost He's a butter edge. knife. I am blunt. I am, ab- I am absolutely. I, this is okay. I just want to interject um, here for a sec because I think that that's an interesting sort of notion that, I mean, I think some of the heaviest music on this record is the stuff that jay farrar writes um in particular the postcard that that's um probably the heaviest song in the record when it starts i mean it's that dun, 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 dun. i mean it's just a heavy riff Just as well to write this postcard from hell. 
Bar clock says 3 a.m. Fallout shelter sign above the door. Now the words don't come here anymore. But the thing that's interesting, not, not only about Jay Farrar, but about their songwriting in general, is that they're able to take a really heavy guitar riff that would almost be punk and then in the span of like 30 seconds be into a country waltz and they do it seamlessly you, it's almost like um, they figured out the perfect transition between rockabilly and punk and um, and country and were able to encapsulate it in one or two chord progressions so that you know, Jeff Tweedy does that too on um, a song like uh, Watch Me Fall. There's like a, a country, I don't know what's called, a two-step beat? I, I'm not sure exactly what, where he's, it's almost, um, you know, like a country beat, but then it goes into like a, a punk stomp during the chorus parts. And I don't know if you guys really, you know, that stuck out to you or not, or what but yeah i mean like track three it i mean it starts off as a legitimate ballad by the end of the song it's pretty raucous i mean they they somehow pick the tempo up or at least the perception of the tempo and it almost becomes a different song but it kind of evolves it's not like a hard you know switch i mean it kind of evolves sort of becomes a different feel completely by the end of the song so yeah the out the outro of that song mike Hydorn is just slamming the snare drum it's like a machine gun at the end of that song more and more makes a hunger for less you get hurt when you touch the bright lights burning when you're high you can fall down easy he's sort of like the weapon the, the secret weapon of this band he's able to do you know drumming like that drumming like on the beginning of gun which is got that intro um where he's pounding on the on the toms um but then i was able to do like a slow sort of uh looking for a way out which is probably my favorite song on the record going back to when i first learned to play this record you know he's able to just sort of like get that sort of Neil Young groove, that crazy horse groove. And um, well, I think I think it might be postcard, but it, it's like the drums are just, I mean, there's a drum fill every second and they're just crazy. Um, so yeah, there's definitely like tons of restraint and then just all out just punk rock craziness for moments where they can definitely see the full span, which, you know, I'm not as familiar with the rest of the catalog, but it seems as though, you know, that would be 
this would be more what I'd be interested in, you know, sort of where you figure out how to combine all these things together into into one album and sometimes one song. This is the heaviest record by far of all the Uncle Tupelo records. The first record, there are elements of this, but it is, it's not as aggressive. It's, there's distortion on it, but it's not as aggressive as this. Third record is all acoustic. And the fourth record is very much in the vein of what would become, it's basically Sunvolt and Wilco records one, but divided on the first Uncle Tupelo record. Where you have that, you know, that first Wilco record are songs like Casino Queen and Box Full of Letters, and it um, it almost sounds like a, a Tom Petty album or something. And then yeah. Thunvolt record is, um, you know, it's got Drown, the radio single. That's the song that most people are, who are familiar with Sunvolt know. But it's definitely none of it gets as heavy as as Postcard or. Um, um, discarded or any of the heavier songs on this record it's also fun to kind of hear the like the the little signature things that both these guys continue to do i mean you can you can hear them on this album like the jay farrar like at the end of the the line he'll let the he'll let a chord hang out and then kind of bend it or it'll be like a strange off key chord that he'll kind of bend and everybody will stop playing um and then they come all back in you know that there's he probably does that five times on this album. And it's something he does in Sunvolt too. It's just like one of his signature things. And then Jeff Tweedy, um, the last song on here, um, I think it's the last song. It's sort of, he's playing clean electric guitar, but underneath it is um, either synth or organ. It almost sounds like string synth, which starts to really start to feel like more along the lines of what he started evolving to doing. That's definitely but the I most think, Wilco West song. I don't think there's any other keyboards on this album at all. It's just that song, which... There's you know, some just piano little... on Fall Down Easy, I think. Yeah, yeah, there's some piano, but I mean, like, keyboard, keyboard. Gotcha. Like synth synthesizer. When will it all become definitely tons of like little things in there where you know you hear their signature little trademarks i guess pop through it's kind of fun to hear it all on one album since you guys have both heard sunvolt and wilco lyrically did you pick up on how different jeff tweedy's lyrics are from there until now and how similar jay farrar's lyrics are and i guess i mean that in the sense that 
Jeff Tweedy's writing very, I think, basic slice of life relationship type songs, whereas Jay Farrar is very, very influenced by the beat writers like Jack Kerouac and writing all these like songs about the working man. And it makes sense. I mean, they grew up in, in a, kind of a an impoverished small town in Illinois in the late 80s. They're, you know, Jay, they're both very well-read guys, but Jay Farrar injected a lot of sort of co- class consciousness into his lyrics in songs like Looking for a Way Out, which is quite obviously about living in a small town and having no options. Um, song like still be around i think almost every song of jay farrar's mentions getting drunk and having no future it's almost like the <laughs> sex pistol in that regard really yeah jay farrar's that say that yeah i mean if you look you okay. know a song like um uh looking for a way out like i mentioned the lyrics go um Torn between the unknown and a place that you call home and the life you want but you've never known there was a time you could put it all out of your mind and leave it all behind. There was a time, but that time is gone. What is life for 50 years in this town done for you except to earn your name and place on a bar stool? I mean, and that, that is a theme throughout pretty much all of Jay Farrar's songwriting, I think. I mean, and obviously I'm coming at this as someone who's a little obsessive about Uncle Tupelo and, and Sunvolt and Wilco, where I've, I've sat and actually read all the lyrics, not just listened to them. And there's a... The, the thing that's interesting is that Jeff Tweedy really evolved. I mean, he's become much, yeah. much I, more I, I agree yeah. cerebral songwriter... Um, he still addresses, you know, the relationship stuff, and he can still have a good time, but it's much more, um, you know, you think about the Yankee Hotel Foxtrot album. That's a pretty mature lyric, lyrical album. Well, he's mature musically, too. I mean, whether I may not like it as much, where he's kind of gone, um, especially last, you know, more, more recently, but... Um, he's definitely matured. I mean, he's definitely evolved, I guess. And Jay Farrar really hasn't. I mean, the albums he's he's put out are, you know, for all intents and purposes, the same as this stuff. I mean, it's not that dramatically different, uh, both from musical approach and lyrically. It's kind of... He, he reminded me of... His songs remind me more of Neil Young, and Jeff Tweedy's songs remind me more of Tom Petty. Um... So it's kind of like if you put those two guys in a band, that's what this album sounds like to me. Well, the guitar um, solo alone in Looking for a Way Out is straight off of 
you know, Neil Young, Crazy Horse, um, Russ Never Sleeps. I mean, it's totally his style of, you know, soloing is, is make noise and bend notes and, and it's not showy, it's, it's more about feel. Um, yeah, I had a chance to, I've seen him twice. I saw him uh, in the late 90s when they were on tour for the second record, and then I saw him solo actually at Little Brothers uh, when that was open here in Columbus when he was, yeah, for the Sebastopol um, uh, solo album. And, um, and what Neil said about him having like zero personality on stage, it never changed. I mean, I saw him in 96, 97, and I saw him in 2001, 2002, whenever that album came out. There was no evolution, but there's a huge evolution in J and Jeff Tweedy. I saw Jeff Tweedy twice on the Being There tour, once in New York City and then once in Detroit. And they were basically a, like kind of a punk rock meets Stones band. Like they were getting up all their slow songs, they double timed them and they turned up the distortion and they were jumping around on stage. And then now you see them now, and like Neil said, for better or worse, they're, they've got a, like an eight piece band and they're kind of the Grateful Dead. And he's, they're not jumping around, but you know, that's the natural evolution of guys in their 40s and kids. And not, Unless you're the Rolling Stones. Not being drugs on drugs, so. Or ACDC or. Yeah. Some of the countless bands that haven't done that. Yeah, but... Brian Johnson is not doing leg kicks uh, at ACDC. I don't know. They're still putting on a pretty, pretty intense show. I'm sure he never did leg kicks in the first place. This but... is doing his duck walk, but I, I was. Uh, I, I'll say that going into this, I was expecting uh, the production to not hold up very well. Um, my perception of their early stuff, maybe it's from the first album, but. Um, my perception going in was that this was going to be, you know, recorded pretty poorly. Um, but I was completely wrong. It's, I mean, it sounds really good. Well, this I mean, is the sounds... reissue, uh, so it was remastered. Okay. I mean, it sounds timeless, which, you know, I can't... It's going to be tough to say, but, you know, talk to me in 20 years, but I'm not sure some of the Wilco stuff is going to sound as timeless as this does. Um, I think the perspective right now is that, you know... Jeff Tweedy is, like you said, has evolved and experimented and done different things. But you know, 20 years from now, I mean, maybe Jay Farrar and the Uncle Tupelo stuff ends up sounding more time timeless and you know, classic. And the Jeff Tweedy stuff starts to be stamped a little bit with what was going on at the time and what he was influenced by. Um, but I, I, I will, I'll just say that you know, this album holds up for the time it was recorded and. uh and uh, I guess not being on a huge label, it sounds really good. I I, I love this record. It um yeah I, it was it was not, again nice to revisit. It's 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 you know thinking just about um, all the other stuff that those guys have produced. Um, you know there will never be an Uncle Tupelo reunion. No, they hate each other. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, to sort of have that captured and, you know, this happens a lot and with two strong personalities and, and I think in this case, um, Jay's probably the stronger personality earlier, um, but we've talked, you know, you mentioned about balding and I, I absolutely agree with that and, you know, it's, it's when you have those two characters together and, and that really produces some really sort of special magic and, 
you know, there's a number of different bands and, um, you know, one part of that equation changing, it's amazing how much that can change the dynamic um, of a band. And, you know, I think out of the gate, everyone thought Sunvolt was going to be the I was going to say, that's where I had my band. mind. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, just uh, for a number of different reasons, you know, Solid Foundation and, and probably better lyricists at that time. So. Um, but, um, so it's nice to have that captured of these two really, you know, different personalities. You know, when you take um, the Mars Volta and Sparta, you know, and put them back together with um, at the drive-in, or um, you know, Tanya Dolly and Kristen Hirsch and put them back together in the throwing music, and these different these different combinations of really strong personalities. And when you when they each get to do exactly what they want to do, it's maybe not so much of maybe I, that's not as good as I, an idea as I thought it was going to be from a from a oh, yes. it's nice to have records um, you know and Anodyne's a great you know that's a a really great I mean the, this whole catalog is really fun um, a fun so it's listen. safe to say so, that this um, is the Beatles of the 90s <laughs> what no, I'm just kidding I just meant in terms of that <laughs> having two really strong songwriters or the Lennon and McCartney of no, it is not safe. To, <laughs> that's what you guys are. That's safe. what I'm getting from it's, you guys. That this is the Beatles so, of the '90s. It's so unsafe to say that. I'm going to punch you next time I see you. <laughs> uh, no, but I think uh, it is Neil's a, point is is spot on in terms of it, going back to what I said about early on about you know the I love hearing the back and forth, but I also love that these two guys at this point are kind of saving each other from themselves. You know, they're they're pushing back on indulgences that later on particular with Jeff Tweedy that he allows himself to do that there's no way Jay Farrar is letting him do any of that shit on this album and uh, you know he's probably inspiring him right to write better lyrics and um, I think maybe Jay Farrar is being, being pushed maybe to rock out a little bit harder so on like postcard maybe that's kind of what you're hearing um, at times I almost felt like maybe they were trying to like outdo each other in the way that the you know the songs they were bringing to the table and the way they're performing them i was getting a sense of uh um you know maybe they were trying to write songs like the other one would write you know i'm getting different you know i have no idea of any of this but just sort of your mind starts to think about these kind of things when you're listening to an album like this where you got two people coming um with strong perspectives um so i i love that that um they're not letting each other they're, they're kind of pushing each other and not letting each other indulge, you know, and sort of saving each other from sort of the worst parts of their personalities, I guess. Uh, so to me, it works better um, in a lot of ways than either of their solo careers. Um, I, obviously, both bands solo-wise, I think they, there's some really good songs and even some really good albums, but I don't know. There's something way more interesting to me at this point about the, this album than and a lot of that stuff. It's the talent and then the tension that, that makes the band. So, so could a, do you could, do you guys think a band? I don't, I don't know. Am I missing somebody? But it just doesn't seem like a band like can ha- like a band with this much talent can even happen now. Like in terms of having like two completely independent songwriters who you know work together. Well, you just had Jay Z and Kanye do a record together. I said band. <laughs> I didn't say art performing artist. 
that's a good point. I can't think of a single band. Well, you also got, uh, what about, um, what's the new Mary Timoney and uh, oh, Leader Kenny Wild Flag, group. is that what they're called? But they're, yeah. they're basically a super group that so forms Mary afterward. Timoney. I think what Jay's sort of getting at is like a band that forms from a, from the origins. You know, these guys are like in high school, and then they... I just feel like uh, a label now, if they found a young band like that, with two people that talented, they'd almost like push to separate them or something. <laughs> You know, or they would try to pluck one out and try to build them up, and like, I don't know. A la Paramore. There you go. But I'm not familiar. I'm not familiar with Paramore. Well, well you've got the, the you, you, well, you've got the, you've got the, you know, the 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 brothers rocking out in the garage. They bring the singer, make the band, you know, and then the label's like, you should yeah. be a star. You don't need those guys. You know. And then you hear the al- the music they're doing without those two guys, and you're like, "This is boring." And then you listen to the music that the two brothers are making, yeah, and you're like, "This you... doesn't make any sense." Yeah, you're kind of missing. Yeah, so there's there's a lot of that, you know, and and some, I mean, a lot of it's, you know, we also don't know what you know what's happening with money and egos, you know, they weren't getting paid from the label apparently, you know, so, you know, they're scrapping and clawing and it's each song they get on the record is going to be money in their bank you know that that can i forgot about know, that. that and this is a pretty much even it. split i think jay farrar has seven songs and jeff tweedy has six songs that's the most even of all their records because oh, jay, jay farrar kind of yeah. withdrew from the last record a lot it's a lot i think it's dominated by jeff tweedy um and, and one of they did a like one or I think they do one cover on the each of the records besides this one, so they you know even then they're paying out for those. Is there a cover on this album? No, there's no cover on this one. Okay. Uh, the first record has cover, and then the, the acoustic album has several covers because they're like traditional folk songs. And then um, the the last album, Anodyne, has a cover on it. Um, and uh, that's something that. Jay Farrar would continue because on the first Sunvolt record there's a cover um, which is interesting because those records basically sound like the last Uncle Tupelo record and from what I've read they were both basically written either around the time that they were writing those songs or directly afterward so they might have been antis- songs anticipated for a future Uncle Tupelo album but that just never made it um, so it's kind of when you listen to Sunvolt's Trace and Wilco's AM could kind of almost imagine them being anodyne part two because they continue in the tradition of Jeff Tweedy's sort of you know more poppier Tom Petty songwriting and Jay Farrar's more you know, Neil Young influenced songwriting. Um, you don't really get to their I think I think they really become the solo artists on both of their second album, which is when Wilco puts out being there where they really expand the sound and experiment and then Sunvolt's uh, Straightaways, the second album. And that definitely has some changes from the first record. Do you think they listen to each other's albums? That's an excellent question. I, I remember reading something back in the day that Jeff Tweedy had definitely listened to the first Sunvolt record. I don't know if he's any, listened to anything after that. Um, but I think there was definitely some competition come out of the gate because they were both on major labels at that point they both had records come out within a couple months of each other 
they were sniping in the press back and forth at each other. So, I mean, they had pressure on them. They had a really rabid fan base at that point that was, like, dying for any piece of information they could get about this. This is pre-internet, so... You know, they had kids looking up their tab on the internet to learn how to play their songs. Exactly. It was insane. They had not only kids looking them up, but actually sitting there and, and figuring out the songs and then typing them out and then sending the tab via email to those websites. So... He was out of control. I was. Um, well, thanks, guys. I've enjoyed uh, doing this with you. I was actually kind of shocked that you guys both liked the record. I didn't I didn't know how this was going to go down. What's wrong with you? Come on. Tim's conclusion is he has no idea why this record didn't sell a <laughs> million copies. But it sold, it sold 200,000 200, copies later on for a cumulative total of, what, 300, 350,000 I think they probably records, sold, maybe? at this point, probably half a million records in the entire Uncle Tupelo catalog. Would be my best guess. And now we'll never, they'll never make it as die. Probably. On Spotify. Hey, we make money from Spotify. Well, make sure, what, yeah, we're, our band makes money from Spotify. So. so you know they gotta be. They got their shit together. We don't know what we're doing. Yeah. They went. Nice. They banded. They banded together uh, to sue uh, Rockville Records. I actually own all of the original Rockville versions, and then I rebought the reissues. I'm that guy. Who actually got Jeez. has both versions. So. That's my, so you did say that they got to, they in 2000 they joined forces to sue the Rockville and then reissue both everything. Both lawyered up separately. Okay. So I don't think that they had any some cooperation. That's a glimmer of hope that there could be a reunion. Yeah, I don't think. Maybe when they're old and well, they're getting old, but older. I think they both have to have dementia. <laughs> Get about the fact that they hate each other. That's the only way it's going down. It just seems so silly. Yeah, life's too short. No kidding. They just—they could probably tour, and it would be as big as when the Pixies got back together. It'd be pretty big. Well, <laughs> yeah, I would think. I mean, they both have had way bigger career, solo careers than anybody in the Pixies ever did. So. Yeah, I mean Jeff Tweedy alone would be able to sell out, you know, fifteen thousand seat stadiums. So. We'll never know. We'll never know. I'm sorry, Tim. You'll never this is know. One, in, when people talk about if you could see a band live, um, what band would that be? You know, time not uh, a factor. It would probably be Uncle Tupelo would be in the top one or two. I have a hard time imagining what they sounded like live on well, this record because it doesn't you, sound Jay, like a three-piece piece band on the record. It sounds like... I can tell you because I have a VHS recording of their last show and I have multiple so. bootlegged cassettes from when I was involved with Tape Traders in the 90s I used to exchange tapes um, and I have several Wil- uh, Sunvolt Wilco and Uncle Tupelo shows when they were three piece I have early stuff and then I have a lot of later stuff what's it sound like I mean they're pretty raucous live you know? I mean, yeah. they're a lot more aggressive even when I saw Wilco and Sunvolt I saw Wilco Sunvolt and then Golden Smog which was the side project of Jeff Tweedy, along with Gary Loris from the Jayhawks and some other guys, Dan, Dan Murphy yeah. from Sound. Sell them all in the same year at the same venue. Uh, the Majestic Theater in Detroit, which, Jay, you and I went there to see Manic Street Preachers there um, like two years ago, or a year ago, whatever that was. That was a great venue. Yeah, and I saw them in the span of basically from fall to winter, um, or from spring to winter, I'm sorry, 
I saw all three bands at that same venue. And all of those bands were a lot more, you know, amped up live than um, the records. Which I think is the case with a lot of bands. They tend to be more raucous live. Yeah, I just meant, I, I, I don't know. I guess, I, it, again, it, this album doesn't sound like a three-piece to me. Like, it sounds like at least there's another guy in there. And then when you mix in the piano, I love the piano stuff on there. There's a couple songs where it plays, you know, melodies through the whole song. And, I mean, how the hell did they do that live? Um, I think, Brian, at this point, Brian Henneman was, like, the touring multi-instrumentalist. And he would sort of sit off to the side, and if they needed piano on a song, he'd play piano. If they needed banjo, or if they needed, you know, acoustic guitar, whatever, he would be. And he was also tuning their guitars for them. He was the, they needed needed an extra big mandolin. What is that called? A bazooki. The bazooki. Hey, get on the bazooki on this tune. And then later on, then later Jay Bennett would do that for Wilco. And then when Jay Bennett left, they got um, Leroy Bach yep. to do that for Wilco as well. All right. Well, we have passed the one hour mark on this podcast. Oh my god! So we're gonna. We didn't even mention Two Cow Garage or other Columbus bands or Whiskey other Town, bands. Ryan there. Adams, tons of bands influenced. By I mean, it's it's. Yeah. All right, you got to edit yeah. that episode down. Uh, we have just finished the fourteen minute mark because I've edited everything down to uh, fourteen. All right, uh, Neil. Thank you once again for joining us. Uh, it was thank delightful. You. And we're going to have you back again sometime soon. Maybe next week. I'd love to. Uh, Jay? Yeah. I'll see you around. Yeah, probably. All right. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. Whatever. Yeah, whatever, dude. <laughs> kind of disappointed. I was amped up and ready to fight, and you didn't fight me. Uh, it's, a good, right. it's a good record. Move on. I'm shocked. You, like, have a really piss poor perception of what I like it's becoming a theme on the uh, the show here it, it wasn't Sons of Elvis for Christ's sake come on <laughs> We're, you're giving that album way too much publicity please stop talking about it alright we're gonna get out of here we're at the three hour mark so thanks guys for joining us and we'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out conversation about this episode. Visit digmeoutpodcast.com for links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed. Door. Now the words don't come